Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Andrea Norton's The Stars Are Ours. Volume 7, Chapter 4, Those Others. Easy does it now. Cully laid down the chisel he had been using delicately and applied pressure with the flat of his hand. The others weren't really breathing down his neck but they did struggle against the curiosity which made them crowd around the engineer as he worked to open the cylinder. It's too light for an explosive, Rogan repeated for about the 50th time since they had unloaded their find before the starship. At a good vantage point up on the ramp, Carly Scort and Trudy Harmon sat together while the men below tried to hand Cully tools he didn't need and generally got in each other's way. But now they had come to that last moment of suspense. After more than an hour's work, the engineer had been able to force open the small sealed hatch. Cully bumped heads with Kimber and Kordoff as he flashed a torch beam into the interior. Then, with infinite care, he began to hand out, to eager assistance, a series of boxes, small round containers, and a larger ornamented chest. All of these were fashioned of the same lightweight alloy as the large carrier, and they appeared unmarked by time. Cargo carrier, Kimber decided. What can be in these? He held one of the smallest boxes to his ear and shook it cautiously, but there was no answering rattle. Kordoff picked up the chest, examining its fastening carefully. At last he shook his head and brought out a pocket knife, working the blade into the crevice between lid and side, using it to lever up the cover. Soft, creamy stuff puffed up as the pressure of the lid was removed fluffing over the rim. The first scientist plucked it away carefully in strips. As the late afternoon sun struck full on the contents which had been protected by that packing, there was a concerted gasp from the Terrans. What are they? somebody demanded. Kordoff picked up a fine intertwisted strand, dangling its length in the light. Opals? he suggested. No, these are too hard. Cut in facets. Diamonds? I don't think so. I confess I have never seen anything like them before. And it's a world's ransom of them. Dar did not know he had spoken aloud. The wild beauty swinging from Kordoff's hand drew him in as no man-fashioned thing had done before. Are there any more in there? asked Kimber. That's a large box to hold only one item. We shall see. Girls? Kordoff held out the rope of strange jewels to the two women. Hang on to that. Another layer of packing was pulled out to display a pair of bracelets, this time red stones, which Santi identified. Those are rubies. I prospected in the Lunar Mountains and found some just like them. Good color. What else you got there, Taz? A third layer of packing led to the last and greatest wonder of all. A belt, five inches wide with a clasp so set in gems as to be just an oval glitter. The belt itself was fashioned of rows of tiny crystalline chains. Trudy Harmon tried to clasp it around her waist to discover it would not meet by inches. Nor was Carly able to wear it either. They must have been some mighty slim girls that done wore that. Harmon, Trudy's husband, commented. There was something daunting in that thought. 
Harmon was the first to put into words that lurking fear, that those who had packed the carrier had been non-human. Well, bracelets argue arms, Rogan pointed out. And that necklace went around a neck. A belt suggests a waist, even if it is smaller than yours, girls. I think we can believe that the lady those were meant for wasn't too far removed from our norm. Santee pawed another box away from the pile. Let's see the rest. The boxes were sealed with a strip of softer metal which had to be peeled away from around the edge, and the first three they forced contained unidentifiable contents. Two held packages of dried twigs and leaves, and the third held vials filled with various powders and a dark scum which might have been the remains of liquid. These were turned over to Kordoff for further investigation. Of the remaining boxes, three were larger and heavier. Dard broke the end of the ceiling strip on one and rolled it away. Under the lid was a square of coarse woven stuff folded over several times to serve as protective padding. Since this was like the jewel case, the others stopped their own delving and gathered around as they pulled the stuff loose. What they found beneath was almost as precious in its way as the gems. He dared not put his fingers on it, but worked it out of the container gently by the end of the metal rod on which it was wound in a bolt, for here was a length of fabric. But none of them, not even those who could remember the wonders of the pre-burned cities, had ever seen anything like this. It was opalescent. Fiery color rippled along every crease and fold as Dard turned it around in the sunlight. It must have been spun from the substances of those same jewels that formed the necklace. Carly almost snatched it from him, and Trudy Harmon inserted a timid finger under the edge. It's a veil, she cried. How wonderful. Open the rest of those, Carly pointed to the two similar boxes. Maybe there's more of this. There was more fabric, not so sheer and not opalescent, but woven of changing colors in delicate, subtle shades the Terrans could not put names to. Inspired by this find, they plunged into a frenzy of opening until Kordoff called them to order. These, he indicated the wealth from the plundered boxes, can't be anything but luxury goods. Luxury goods of a civilization far more advanced than ours. I'm inclined to believe that this was a shipment which never reached its destination. That tube we found the carrier in, mused Kimber. Suppose they shot such containers through tubes for long distances, even across the sea. We didn't transport goods that way, but we can't judge this world by Terra. They have no high tides here. Tass? Sim? Carly turned one of the bracelets around in hands which bore the scars of hard-working cleft life. Could they... are they still here, those others? Kimber got to his feet, brushing the sand from his breeches. That's what we'll have to find out, and soon. He squinted up at the sun. Too late to do anything more today, but tomorrow. Hey! Rogan balanced on his palm a tiny roll of black stuff he had just pried out of a pencil-slim container. I think this is some kind of microfilm. Maybe we can check on that, if we can rig up a viewer which will take it. Kordoff was instantly alert. How many of those things are in there? Rogan took them one by one from the box he had opened. 
I see 20. Can you rig a viewer? Was Kordoff's next question. The technician shrugged. I can try, but I'll have to get at machines we packed in the bottom storeroom. And that will take some doing. And, Cully had been poking around in the interior of the now empty carrier. There's an engine in here. Must have supplied the motor power. I'd like to dig it out and see what makes it tick. Kimber ran his hands over the tight cap of his hair. And you'll need the machine shop to do that, I suppose. He was very close to sarcasm. There's the problem of those still in the ship. What are we going to do? Carly broke in. You haven't found any signs of civilization yet except for this, and you don't know how long this could have lain where you discovered it. We can't hold off settlement until we're sure. The cities or centers of civilization, if there are any, may be hundreds of miles away. Suppose a ship had landed on Terra in a center section of the Canadian Northwest or on the steppes of Central Asia or in the middle of Australia, any thinly populated district, it would have been months, maybe years, before its arrival became known, especially since packs were bad travel. There may exist a similar situation here. Our landing may go undiscovered for a long time, if we do share this world. And that you know, Kordoff added, is common sense. Let us explore the valley. If it is promising, make a place there for our people. But at the same time, an exploring team should operate to map the district. Only let us not make contact with any race we find until we know its attitude. Or what manner of creature? Carly said softly to herself. What manner of creature? Dart had caught that. Carly most likely believed that the intelligence which might share this world was non-human. Man's old fear of the unknown, the not understood, would again haunt them. This was an alien world. Could they ever make it home? These are beautiful. Trudy Harmon had knelt beside him in the sand to see the small carvings he was mechanically unwrapping. The one he held represented an animal, which was a weird cross between a horse and a deer, possessing a flowing mane, tail, and horns. Presented as rearing with snorting nostrils, it was a miniature of savage fury. Tiny gems were set in the eye sockets, and the hose were plated with contrasting metal. Some master craftsman had endowed it with life. All these things, they are so wonderful. They love beauty, Dart answered her. But I'll think these. He picked up a small carving representing a different creature, a mannequin with webbed feet, a monkey face, and hands lacking a thumb. Are all pieces to be used in a game? See, here's another horned horse, but made of a different color and another web-footed monkey. In a little tree. She freed a third piece from its wrappings. A tree of golden apples. True enough, on the branches of the cone-shaped tree, there were round gems of glowing fire. Golden apples. That story Lars used to tell Desi about the apples of the sun. Harmon squatted down by his wife to see what held her attention. What's that about apples, Trudy? She held out her hand with the small tree standing on its flattened palm. Golden apples, see, Tim? Looks more like some kind of pine to me. But he took the tree gently. Fruit. That's what those are supposed to be, all right. His eyes went past the starship to the open mouth of the valley where the blue-green of growing things beckoned. 
Might find us some pine-growing apples at that, Trudy. After all, them flying snakes and floating spider plants and them green and yellow duck dogs what keep peeking up at us from holes yonder. Well, I can believe that we're going to pick us apples off of pine trees too. Only we'd better get about the business of going to hunt them trees pretty soon. The business of hunting their future settlement began the next morning. Kimber with Rogan and Santee took off in the sled to make a circuit of the inner valley. When they signaled that they had viewed nothing disturbing there, a second exploring party set off on foot. Cully, Harmon, and Dard, with packets of supplies, stun rifles, and water-filled canteens, progressed slowly up the river. At the entrance to the inner valley, the sand was broken by patches of soil, shading from red-yellow to dark brown. In this earth grew tufts and clumps of thin-bladed, very tough-stemmed grass, which in its turn gave way to small bushes clothed with ragged blue-green leaves. All three of the explorers stopped short as the grass before them swayed, masking the progress of some living thing. Dard was the first to move forward with his silent woodsman's tread. Cautiously, he parted the tall stalks to see below him a real path, as well marked as a Terran game trail, but in miniature. As the swaying still continued, he stood waiting, hardly daring to breathe. Around the roots of a low bush, a small red-brown head, almost indistinguishable from the bare earth of the trail, showed. Dard waited. With a hop, the traveler came into plain sight. Close to the size of a Terran rat, it hopped on large, overdeveloped hind legs, between which bobbed a fluff of a tail. Small hand-like paws hung down across its darker belly fur. The ears were large and fan-shaped and fringed with the same fluff as the tail. Black buttons of eyes showed neither pupil nor iris, and a rounded muzzle ended in a rodent's prominent teeth. But Dar did not have long to catalog such physical points. It sighted him. Then it gave a wild bound, making an about-face turn while in the air, disappearing in a second. Dard was left to pick up from the center of the trail the object it had just dropped in its flight. Was that a rabbit? Harmon wondered. Or a squirrel or a rat? How are we going to know? What'd that critter drop, boy? Dard held a pod about three inches long, dark blue and shiny. He surrendered it to Harmon, who slit the outer covering with a thumbnail and shook out a dozen dark blue seeds. Bees, beans, wheat... Harmon's bewilderment showed signs of irritation. It grows, ripens this way, it may be good to eat, but... He turned to his companions and ended with an explosive. How are we ever going to know? Take him back and try him on the hamsters, Collie returned laconically. But that hopper, he could sure go, couldn't he? Thus he unconsciously christened the third type of fauna they had discovered in the New World. Harmon stowed the seeds and pot away in a zipper-closed pocket before he moved on through the grass which arose waist-high about them. Here and there in it, they spotted more of the seed pods. In fact, shortly, the pod-headed plants were so thick around them that they might have been swishing through a field of ripened grain. Harmon broke the silence. This remind you anything? They regarded the expanse of blue doubtfully and shook their heads. Well, it does me. This here looks just like a wheat field. 
all ready to be reaped. I tell you, I'm thinking we're walking over somebody's farm. But there's no fences, protested Dart. No, but you take a farm that's not been touched for a good long time. This stuff could have just kept seeding itself and spread out a lot. I got a feeling this is part of a farm. With that, Harmon took the lead, cutting across the narrowest section of the ripe crop to a line of bushes. Now that his attention had been stimulated by Harmon's theory, Dard thought that that clump of taller vegetation was strung out as if it might provide a barrier for the grain, a fence for the field. They worked their way around this line of brush to discover Harmon's instinct right, for there was no disguising the artificiality of a large dome flanked by several smaller ones, which stood surmounted and surrounded by ranks of vines, tall grass, and long unpruned shrubbery. But it was not those domes that held the explorer's attention. A constant murmur of sound and a flash of flying things drew them to a tree standing in what once must have been the front yard if those others cultivated front yards. The golden apples! Dart identified the tree from the carved piece he had seen the night before. Its symmetrical cone shape of blue-green provided the right background for the yellow globes, which dragged down branches with their weight, and the air and grass around the tree were alive with feasters. The Terrans watched the wheeling birds, or were they oversized butterflies, that settled and squabbled for a chance to sink beaks into those ripened orbs. Along the ground, there was a steady coming and going of hoppers harvesting the soft-fallen fruit, and from that scene of activity, the breeze wafted a scent which set the watchers' mouths watering, semi-intoxicating with its promise of juicy delights. As the men advanced, the busy feeders displayed no signs of alarm. One hopper ran straight between Cully's feet, a quarter section of dripping fruit clasped in his arms, and a bird butterfly skimmed Dart's head on its way to the banquet. Well, for... Cully caught himself in mid-stride to avoid stepping on a furry red-brown mass. He picked up one of the hoppers in a completely comatose state. Harmon gave a bark of laughter. Dead drunk, he commented. Seen chickens, pigs like this. Get that way on cider leavings. Look at here. This bird can't fly straight neither. And he was right. A lavender creature whose wings were banded with pale green and gray flapped an erratic course to a nearby bush and clung there as if it did not trust his powers for a farther flight. Cully laid down the limp hopper and picked one of the golden apples. It snapped away easily. He held it out for closer examination. The skin was firm over the pulp, and radiating out from the stem were tiny rosy freckles, and the enticing scent was a temptation hard to withstand. Dard wanted to snatch the fruit from the engineer to sink his teeth into its smooth skin and prove to himself that it tasted as good as it smelled. Pity we ain't got a hamster with us to try it on, but we can take some back, if and they're good. Harmon swallowed visibly. We can have us some real eatin'. Needn't let the critters take em all. Fellow what lived here, I bet he set a star by them their things. Golden apples, yeah, that's just what they be. But they ain't gonna run away, and me, I kinda like to see the house and barns. The house and barns, if those were the correct designations for the domes, were half buried in twisting vines and rank growth, 
When they broke their way through to what must have been the front door of the largest dome, Cully let out his breath in a low whistle. There was a fight here. This door was smashed in from the outside. Dard, accustomed to the violence of the raiding parties of the packs, noted the broken scraps of metal on the portal and agreed. They edged into a scene of desolation. The place had been looted long ago. Tough grass grew through a crack in the wall, and the litter underfoot went to powder when their boots touched it. Dard picked up a shred of golden glass which held a fairy tracery of white patterns, but there was nothing whole left. Raiding party, all right, Harmon agreed, conditioned by his Terran past. Could be they had them some peacemen here, too. Well, that was a long time ago. We better let Kordoff and the Brains prospect around here. Maybe they can learn what really happened. Wonder if the barn took a beating. But what they did discover in the larger of the two remaining domes brought a steady stream of curses from Harmon and made Dard's skin crawl with its suggestions of wanton and horrible raping. A line of white skeletons along the wall, each in what seemed to be a stall. Harmon tried to pick up the oddly shaped skull which went to dust in his fingers. Left him to die of thirst and starvation, gritted the farmer. Knocked off the people and just left the rest. They, they were worse than the peace men, them what did this. They must have been the winners, too, observed Cully. Not too pleasant to think about. All three started at a shout, and Dard swung his stun rifle around at the entrance of that tragic barn. What if they were returning? Then he forced imagination under control. This horror had occurred years ago. Its perpetrators were long dead. But had they left descendants with the same characteristics? Kimber came into the dome. What are you doing here? He wanted to know. We've been watching you from the sled. What in the blue blazes is this? A warning left by some very nasty people, said Dard speaking up. This farm was raided, and whoever did it left the animals penned up to starve to death. Kimber walked slowly along that pitiful line of bones, his face very sober indeed. It's been a long time since this happened. It appeared to Dard that the pilot was reassuring himself by that statement. Yeah, Harmon agreed. Good long time. They ain't been back since. Guess we can move down here and take over, Sim. This was a good farm once. No reason why it can't be one again. Chapter 5. War Ruin For the next five days they were well occupied. An extensive exploration of the inner valley on foot and in the air revealed no other evidences of the former civilization, and the Terrans decided against inhabiting the farm. About those domes there clung the shreds of ancient fear and disaster, and Dard was not the only one to feel uneasy within those walls. The tree of golden apples was one of their best finds. The hamsters relished the fruit, and so encouraged, the humans raided along with the valley's furred and feathered inhabitants, because the globes were as good as they looked and smelled, though their intoxicating effect did not hold with the Terrans. The grain proved also to be useful, and Harmon took the risk of rousing one or two of the heifer calves carrying the ship and feeding it in the forsaken fields where it lived and grew fat. On the other hand, a bright green berry with a purplish blush was almost fatal to a hamster and had to be shunned by the Terrans.
although the hoppers and the birds gorged themselves upon it. Quarters were established, not outside the cliffs which walled the valley, but within them. The second day's exploration had located a cave which led in turn to an inner system of galleries, through one of which the rivers wove its way. Habituated to such dwelling from their years in the cleft, they seized upon this discovery eagerly. More of the adult passengers were awakened and put to work assembling machines, laboring to make the caves into a new home that could not be easily detected, for the threat kept before them by the ruined farms was always in their minds. Three more bodies were carried from the starship to be interred beside Louis Scort, still encased in the boxes which held them during the voyage. But Kordoff continued to insist that they had been lucky. There were fifteen men at work now, and ten women added their strength to harvesting the strange grain and making habitable the cave dwellings. Blasted! Kimber drew out the motor section of the sled and made a grab at thin air. What's the matter? Then he caught sight of what had brought the pilot to the exploding point. A hopper bounded toward the tall grass, something shiny between its front paws. They were stealing again. Dard dived and his fingers closed about the small, frantically kicking body, while a squeak, which approached a scream, rent the quiet of their outdoor workshop. The boy freed his captive to nurse a bitten hand, but the hopper had also dropped the bolt it had stolen. Not retired empty-pawed into the bushes, uttering impolite remarks concerning Dard's destination and ancestry. Better go and have that bite looked after. Kimber ordered a resignation as he accepted the rescued bolt. I don't know what we're going to do about those little beasts. They'd carry off everything they could lug if we didn't watch them all the time. Regular pack rats. Dard cradled the bitten hand in the other. I'd like to find one of their burrows or nests or whatever they build to keep their loot in. It should be a regular curiosity shop. If anyone can, you will. Cully spoke from the cylinder he was dismantling. You ever notice, Sim, he continued, how this kid gets around? I'll wager he could walk through the grain field and not make a sound or leave a trail anybody could follow. How'd you ever learn that useful trick, fella? Dard was sober. The hard way, living as an outlaw. You know, those harpers are awful pests, but I can't help admiring them. Kimber snorted. Why? Because they know what they want and go after it? They are single-minded, aren't they? Only I wish they were a little more timid. They should be more like the duck dogs, willing to watch us but keeping their distance. Cut along, kid, and get that finger seen to right away. Working hours aren't over yet. Dard traced Carly Scort to where she was busy fitting up the small dispensary, a niche in the wall of the second cave, and had his bite sterilized and bandaged with plastiskin. Hoppers? She shook her head. I don't know what we're going to do to discourage them. They stole Trudy's little paring knife yesterday and three spools of thread. He could understand her dismay over these losses. Little things, yes, but articles which could not be replaced. Luckily, they appear to be afraid to come into the caves. So far, we haven't caught any of them inside, but they are the most persistent and accomplished thieves I have ever seen. Dard, would you go out, stop in the kitchen, and pick up a lunch for your working crew? Trudy should have the packets made up by now. He obediently made his way past work gangs 
into the other small cave where Trudy Harmon, with an assistant, was setting out stacks of plastic containers. The rich scent which filled the air tickled Dard's nose and made him aware of hunger. It had been hours and hours since breakfast. Oh, it's you, Trudy greeted him. How many in your gang? Three. Her lips moved, counting silently as she apportioned the containers and set them in a carrier. Mind you bring those back, and don't you dare leave them where any hoppers can get their paws on them. No, ma'am. Something sure smells good. She smiled proudly. Those golden apples. We stewed some of them up into a kind of pudding. Which reminds me, where is that queer leaf, Petra? The dark-haired girl who had been stirring the largest pot on the stove pulled a glossy green leaf from one of her pockets. It was almost a perfect triangle in shape, green threaded by bright red and yellow veins. You ever see anything like that before, Dard? Trudy asked. He took it and examined it curiously before he answered with a shake of his head. Well, pinch it and give it a good sniff, Trudy suggested. He did, and the odor of cooking was nullified by another aromatic, clean fragrance, a mixture of herbs and flowers, of all the pleasant scents he had ever known. You can rub it on your skin or hair, and the scent lingers, Petra told him eagerly. And you'll never guess where we got this one from, Trudy broke in. Tell him. I saw a hopper carrying it out of the grain field when I was cleaning yesterday. I thought it had been stealing from our food and chased it. Then, when it wriggled through a hole in a brush fence, it dropped the leaf. I picked it up and at first I thought it might be good to eat because the hopper wanted it. But it is just a nice perfume. Sure, and if you want to get on the good side of the kitchen detail, Trudy twinkled at him, you just find out where you can get a peck of those, Dard. We ain't got the smell of that ship off us yet. Nasty old chemicals. And we'd admire a chance to get some perfume. You do a little looking around when you're off on one of those jaunts of yours and see what you can find us. Now clear out and take your lunch. Dard gave the leaf back to Petra and picked up the carrier and went out of the kitchen puzzled. What had Trudy meant by one of those jaunts of yours? far as he knew he was not intending to leave the valley, had some other plans been made? He started back to Kimber, determined to have an explanation. Lunch, huh? Cully crawled out from under the cylinder as Dard sat the carrier on the ground. The engineer wiped his hands on the grass and then on a piece of waste. What do they have for us this time? Stew of apples for one thing, Dard returned impatiently. Listen, Kimber, Mrs. Harmon said something about Mock going on an expedition. Simba Kimber pried the lid off a container of stew and poked into the depths of the savory mixture before he replied, We have to earn our keep, kid, and not being specialists in anything but woodcraft and transportation, it's up to us to do what we can along those lines. You knew the woods and mountains back on Earth, and you have a feeling for animals, so Kordoff assigned you to the exploration department. Dard sat very still, afraid to burst out with the wild exultation which surged in him now. He had tried, tried so hard these past few days to follow Harmon's overpowering interest in the land to be another, if unskilled, pair of hands in the work of the cave. But the machines they were assembling at top speed were totally unknown to him. The men who worked on them lapsed into a jargon of functions he knew nothing about, until it seemed they were jabbering a foreign tongue. For so long he had been responsible for others, 
for Lars and Desi, for their food, their shelter, even their safety. And now he was not even responsible for himself. He was beginning to feel useless, for here he knew so little that was of any account. All his training had been slanted toward keeping alive at a minimum level of existence in a hostile world. With that pressure removed, he believed he had nothing to offer the colonists. What he had dreamed and longed to do was to leave this compact group where he was an outsider and to go into the new world, searching out its wonders, whether that meant trailing a hopper to its mysterious lair or flying above the cliffs into the unknown country beyond. Exploration was what he wanted, wanted so badly that sometimes just thinking about it hurt. And here was Kimber, offering him that very thing. Dard could not say anything, but maybe his eyes, his rapturous face, answered for him as the pilot glanced up and met Dard's wide, happy eyes and quickly looked away. Then the boy's feelings were under control again, and he was able to say in what he believed was a level and unmoved voice, But what are you planning? Go up and over. It was Cully who answered that before Kimber could swallow his mouthful of stew. We load up this old bus, the engineer patted the sled affectionately, and take off to see what lies on the other side of the cliffs, mainly to discover whether we need to expect any visitors. We who? Kimber named those who would share in the adventure. I'll pilot. Cully goes along to keep the sled ticking, and Santee is to provide the strong right arm. To fight... But Dar didn't complete that question before Kimber had an answer. Killing, he said, staring thoughtfully down to the full spoon he balanced on its way to his mouth, is not on the program if we can help it. Even such pests as, Hey, Cully, behind you! The engineer slewed around just in time to snatch up a small wrench and so baffle the furry thief that had tried to seize it. Even those pests are safe from us, Kimber continued, before he added to the swearing engineer. Why don't you just sit on everything, George? That's what I'm doing. He moved to let them see that all the smaller tools he had been using were now covered by his body. May not be comfortable, but they'll still be there when you need them. No, he returned to his earlier theme. We're not going to kill anything if we can help it. To save our lives, for food if necessary, but not for sport. Or because we're not sure. His lips twisted into a sneer. Sport. Greatest sport of all is hunting man. This man finally discovered having terrorized all the rest of the living earth. Our species killed wantonly. Now we have a second choice and chance. Maybe we could be saner this time. So, Santee's a crack shot, but that does not mean he's going to use his rifle. Dard had only one more question. When do we go? Tomorrow morning, early. On our last swing around the cliffs two days ago, we sighted indications of a road leading eastward from the other side. It could be the guide we want. They finished their work upon the sled in mid-afternoon and spent the remaining hours of work time stowing away supplies and equipment. Kimber made preparations for five days' absence from the valley, flying east to the interior of the landmass on which the starship had earthed. That tube we found was pointed in that direction. If it's a freight carrier for some city, and I'm of the opinion that it was, that's where we may find the remains of civilization. Kimber's voice came muffled as he checked dials behind the windscreen of the aircraft. Yeah, Santee added a small bag of his own to the supplies. But after what we saw at the farmhouse, they played rough around here once upon a time. 
better watch out that we don't get shot down before we make peace signs. It's been a long time since the farm was looted, Dard ventured to point out. And why didn't the looters return if they were the winners in some war? Harmon says this land is rich, that any farmer would settle here. Soldiers ain't farmers, boy, said Santee. Me, I'd say this was lootin' done by an army or somebody like them blasted peacemen. They was out to smash and grab and run. Lant don't mean nothing to those kind of guys. But I see what Harmon means. If the war ended, why didn't somebody come back here to rebuild? Yeah, that's sense. Maybe no one was left, Tard said. Blew themselves up? Kimber's expressive eyebrows rose as he considered that. Got to wholesale, even for a big-time war. The burn-off took most of Terra's cities, and the purge killed off the people who could rebuild them, but there were still plenty of men kicking around afterwards. Of course, they were ahead of us technically here. Those things in that carrier pointed to that, which argues that if they were like us, they were way ahead in the production of bigger and more lethal weapons, too. I have a feeling that tomorrow or the next day we're going to learn about that. The light was that gray wash which preceded sunrise when Dard sat up in his bedroll to answer the shadowy figure who roused him. He shivered more with excitement than the morning chill as he rolled his bag together and stole after Cully out of the cave to the sled. The four explorers had a hasty breakfast on cold scraps while Kimber talked disjointedly with Kordoff, Harmon, and Rogan. We'll say five days, but it may be longer. Give us a good margin of error, and don't send out after us if we don't make it back. Just take precautions. Kordoff shook his head. No man is expendable here, Sim. Not anymore. But why should we borrow trouble in such large handfuls? I will not believe that you won't return. You have the list of plans of things you are to look for, huh? Simba Kimber touched a breast pocket in answer. Cully took his place in the second seat of the sled and beckoned Dard to join him. When Kimber was behind the control, Santee scrambled in stun gun across his big knees. I'll listen for any broadcast, Rogan promised. And Harmon mouthed something which might have been either a reminder or a farewell as Kimber took them up into the crisp air of the dawn. Dard was too excited to waste any time waving goodbye or looking back into the safety of the valley. Instead, he leaned forward, body tense, as if by the sheer power of his will he could speed their flight into the unknown. They kept to a speed about equal to that of a running man as they followed the cliffs along to the narrow upper end of the valley. Close packed along the edge of those stone walls was the woods the exploring parties had located earlier, only to be kept from penetration by the density of the growth. Queer stuff. Kelly remarked now as they soared over the treetops. A limb grows long, bends over to the ground, touches, then takes root. Another tree starts to grow out right there. That whole mass down there may have started with just one tree, and you can't break or hack through it. The sky before them was bannered with pink streamers. A flight of the delicately hued butterfly birds circled them and flew as escort until they were just beyond the valley wall. What the explorers saw beneath them now was a somber, earth-covering blanket of blue-green, vaguely dismal and depressing with its unchanging darkness. Another collection of the self-planting trees made an effective barrier along the eastern side of the cliffs, and this was not a small wood, 
but stretched into a far forest. There, Santee pointed downward. That's it. Those trees are covering it, but I would say it's a road. A narrow ribbon of light-colored substance, hidden for long distances by the invading trees, ran due east. Kimber brought the sled into line over it. But it was a full hour before they reached the end of the forest and saw the cracked and broken highway which was their guide. It threaded across open plains where now and again they sighted more of the domed dwellings, standing alone and deserted, wreathed with masses of greenery. No people. The land is empty, Dard commented as the sled crossed the fourth of these. War, Kimber wondered. Or diseases. Must have made a clean sweep of this section. And a long time ago, by the growth of the bushes and the appearance of the road. It was more than two hours after they left the valley that they came upon what had been a village, and here was the first clue to the type of disaster that had struck the land. There was one vast pit in the center of the clustered domes. Crushed and shattered buildings ringed it, bearing the stains and melted smears of intense heat. Air raid, Cully asked in silence. They got it good and for keeps. It was war then. Kimber did not circle the damage. Instead, he stepped up the speed of the sled, driven by the same desire that possessed them all, the longing to know what lay beyond the broken horizon. A second town, larger, brutally treated, its remaining structures half-melted, its heart, a crater, passed under them. Then again, open country, beaded by deserted farms. The road ended at last in a city, shattered and smashed, a city planted on the shore of a bay, for here the sea curved in from the northwest to meet them once more. There were towers, snapped, torn, twisted, until those in the sled could not be sure of their original shape, looming beside the dark sores of craters, and at the waterside there was literally nothing but a slick expanse of crystalline slag reflecting the sun's rays. Sea waves lapped that slag, but its edges remained unworn by the touch of water and time alike, and beyond in the bay the waves also curled restlessly around wreckages. Kimber cruised slowly across the spiderweb map of the ancient streets, but the wreckage was so complete they could only guess at the use or meaning of what they saw. Mounds of disintegrating metal might mark the residue of ground transportation devices, their weathered erosion testifying in part to the age of the disaster. And from the sled, the explorers sighted nothing at all which might mark the remains of those who had lived there. They landed on a patch of grassy ground before a huge pile of masonry, which had three walls still standing. The ruined farmhouse had pictured for them tragedy, fear, and cruelty. But this whole city, it was impersonal, too much. Such complete wreckage was closer to a dream. Atom bomb, H-bomb, Null bomb. Collie recited the list of the worst Terra had known. They might have had them here too, all of them. And they were certainly men, for they used them, Kimber added savagely. He climbed out of the sled and faced the building. Its walls reflected the sun as if they were some metallic substance, but softly, with a glow of blue-green, as if the blocks used in building had been quarried of seawater. A flight of twelve steps as wide as a Terran city block 
led up to a mighty portal through which they could see the sun glow bright in the roofless interior. Around that portal ran a band of colors blending and contrasting in a queer way which might have had meaning and yet did not, or Terranize at least. As he studied the hues, Dard thought he had a half hint. Perhaps those colors did have a deliberate sequence. Perhaps they were more than just decoration. <laughs>